0: Robert Mitchum, with all the strange experiences that went into his own life, neatly coming out in the character of Jeff. Mitchum was famous for deriding acting as a career, saying his role was to show up on time, know his lines, hit his marks, and go home. Commenting on his range as an actor, he said, Look, I have two kinds of acting one on a horse and one off a horse. That's it. This is those wonderful people out there in the dark. I'm David Jansen." Episode 15, Out of the Past. I've read film noir, the encyclopedia, books by Eddie Muller, the dean of film noir, even the Wikipedia entry on noir. I know that it's said not to be a genre, but a film style. I know that there are so-called proto-noirs before the classic period of the 40s and 50s, like M, Private Detective 62. What a great title. Certainly, the Maltese Falcon. But, baby, I don't care. I'm not a film scholar or historian. I enjoy the give and take of debate as much as the next G. But for me, as you may have heard previously, there are two pillars of noir, and I think it's the quintessential American film genre. So, there Double Indemnity, which I've done up in a previous pod, and Out of the Past. I like them for different reasons. But they're both indisputable examples of the finest in film noir. Both have incredibly deadly femme fatales to contemplate. But indemne has a weak male protagonist who is led down the garden path. Out of the Past has the coolest, most laconic, world-weary noir character ever portrayed. The standard for the type. You can't take your eyes off him. And America never did. He's the prototype for the antiheroes to follow but was never equaled, Robert Mitchum, and he wraps this film up in his hand, puts it in his trench coat pocket, and makes me want to watch it over and over. It's got all the elements of a great noir, of course, but the star of stars in this is Mitchum. He makes the film, and he's got to drag the attention away from a basket full of talent to do it. Out of the Past came out of the House of Noir, RKO Radio Pictures, in 1947, right in the beginning of the golden era of the genre. Or style. Whatever. Based on the unlikely title, Bill My Gallows High by Daniel Mainwaring, under his pen name, Jeffrey Holmes, the 1946 novel was snapped up by RKO, Mainwaring writing the screenplay as well. He was later caught up deeply in the blacklist. It was stocked with RKO mainstays in all the key positions, and since RKO was known for its B-pictures, It was a happy accident the film received an intermediate-sized budget and the personnel it did, as they were near the top of their respective games. We'll get to the actors in a minute, but I have to start with the director, Jacques Tonnerre, sometimes known in Hollywood as Jack Turner. Doesn't sound near as cool. Tonnerre was born in France and moved with his film director father to the U.S. at an early age, working in odd jobs as a student at the studios. They moved back to France when the younger Tonnerre was 21, and there he began his film career in earnest as an editor and AD. In the 30s, he once again moved to Hollywood and worked at MGM for a time, luckily meeting Val Luton. When he was dropped by MGM, Tonnerre was picked up by producer Luton at RKO and directed a number of low-budget but influential horror films, such as Cat People, I Walked With a Zombie, and The Leopard Man. Tonnerre's and Luton's films may have been low budget, but their inventiveness in suggesting terror rather than showing it, as well as influential set design and hallmark lighting effects, made them memorable and much copied. These elements would all be brought to bear in Out of the Past. Tonnerre went on to make a few other A-pictures, including Berlin Express, Stars in My Crown, and The Flame in the Arrow, but mostly continued to work in a variety of B-Westerns and intermediate-budgeted films, ending with two Vincent Price vehicles, The Comedy of Terrors and War Gods of the Deep, if you can imagine, moving back to France upon retirement. He was paired with his cinematographer compatriot, RKO, another émigré, Nicolas Musaraka. As with Tournaire, Musaraka immigrated with his father to the U.S., then found his way into film in a variety of positions, Including chauffeur, he became a DP at RKO and worked on a proto-noir, Stranger on the Third Floor, with a pre-Maltese Falcon Peter Lorre. The film had all the expressionist hallmarks of noir lighting and setups, which would go on to mark his work. He collaborated with Luton and Tournaire on the RKO B horror film series, preparing him to lens out of the past. The brooding look of past is due to the common agreement and relationship of Musaraka and Tournaire. Musaraka worked from the late 20s into the 50s in films as disparate as The Spiral Staircase, The Bachelor and the Bobby Soxer, I Remember Mama, and Blood on the Moon. One of his last films was Ida Lupino's atmospheric and frightening noir The Hitchhiker, based on a story by, ta-da, Daniel Mainwaring. Tournaire and Musaraka were alike in the back-and-forth up-and-down nature of their filmographies. In such a production, RKO wasn't interested in borrowing any high-powered actors. Everyone came right off the studio payroll. I'll go in reverse order for the headliners. A guy named Kirk Douglas is in it. Yeah, him. It's 1947, and Douglas is not a star per se, though he made a big impression in his debut film, playing a weak husband in The Strange Love of Martha Ivers with Barbara Stanwyck. That was the last time Douglas played a weak character, and he's elegantly tough and passed, playing Whit Sterling, a big-time gambler. In the 30s, he'd been part of the Academy of Dramatic Arts in New York, knocking around the theater scene, and sometimes close to starving. He enlisted in the Navy during World War II, and went back to New York City after, honing his craft in any kind of work he could find, including radio soap operas, where he learned to use his magnificent voice. Past was another big boost to his career. Douglas had an incredibly long career as an actor, and later a director and producer of film, with more than 50 years of performances. The roles he felt most proud of included, in part, Champion, Ace in the Hole, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Lust for Life, Paths of Glory, Spartacus, Lonely Are the Brave, and Seven Days in May. Some list! He was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the AFI Lifetime Achievement Award, the Kennedy Center Honors, and the SAG Lifetime Achievement Award. Nominated for Best Actor by the Academy for Champion, The Bad and the Beautiful, and Lust for Life, he never won, but received an honorary Oscar for the sweep of his career. Never known as a nice guy in Hollywood, he never pretended to be, and he was third billed in past. Of my two foundation noirs, it's hard to beat Barbara Stanwyck as a femme fatale in Indemnity. But Jane Greer goes a long way in past. Beautiful, alluring, mysterious, duplicitous, self-serving, and in the end, violent. Some list. She plays Kathy Moffat, Witt's erstwhile girlfriend, and the subject of all the chasing, literal and figurative, in the film. Greer is a study in contrast to her two co-stars, as her career was nowhere near as long or lustrous. But in past, we're seeing the very best she has to offer the genre of noir. She was born Betty Jane Greer, so you can see why she changed it legally to Jane Greer. What noir femme would have a first name Betty Jane? Greer had a beautiful, placid, almost quizzical face, in part the result of a palsy she suffered at 15, from which she recovered in part by doing facial exercises. It gave her a mysterious affect that fit right into the story of past and her character, who changes allegiance on a moment's notice. She began as a model and singer, then had the misfortune to be picked up by Howard Hughes as one of his acting protégés, with the result he often refused to lend her for productions. She was contracted by RKO and later MGM, but had a short arc in film. Besides past, she appeared in They Won't Believe Me, again with Mitchum in The Big Steel, the remake of The Prisoner of Zenda, and Man of a Thousand Faces. She was consistently passed over for roles at MGM and retired from film, though continued to act on TV. Interestingly, she was cast in the film remake of Past, Against All Odds, this time as the mother of her 1947 character, who was played by Rachel Ward. I won't watch the remake, because my love of the original and Jeff Bridges is outweighed by my hate of James Woods. Plus, it's reputed to be not very good. Okay, here he is, the big guy. The guy I think of as the king cat. The epitome of cool before cool was cool. Robert Mitchum playing Jeff Markham, a.k.a. Jeff Bailey. Mitchum had a life story that would have made a good noir. Born in the East, his father was killed in a job accident when Mitchum was two. His mother struggled to provide for the family and later remarried. Mitchum was sent to live with his grandparents and later his older sister in Hell's Kitchen. As a teenager, he began riding the rails, taking odd jobs, even supposedly serving in a chain gang on a rap of vagrancy. His wanderings led him finally to Long Beach, California, where he began working in local theater as a sometimes actor and writer. He married his school sweetheart, Dorothy, working at Lockheed and even suffering a breakdown due to job stress. He retained an agent who found him small parts in the Hopalong Cassidy serials and had an uncredited part as a G.I. in the human comedy. Eventually, he signed a contract with RKO and impressed with his role in The Story of G.I. Joe, which garnered him his only Oscar nomination as an actor. He shuttled between westerns and noir, which delivered him to past as part of RKO's stable. Mitchum had a high quality and long career in film. In noir, in westerns, in military films, you name it, he played it. From noirs as foundational as Past, Crossfire, The Big Steel, The Night of the Hunter, the original Cape Fear, and a walk on in Scorsese's remake of the film, to 70s British remakes of The Big Sleep and Farewell My Lovely. Westerns such as Blood on the Moon, The Lusty Men, El Dorado, and Five Card Stud. Military films like 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, The Longest Day, and the TV miniseries The Winds of War. The man could play it all, including character pieces such as Ryan's Daughter, The Friends of Eddie Coyle, and that championship season. Hell, I enjoyed him in the Bill Murray holiday film Scrooged. He was quietly funny in his own cool way in that. And Mitchum was a forerunner in that he was part of one of the more openly acknowledged scandals in golden age Hollywood, due to his bust for pot in 1948 from a set-up raid of a party. Mitchum and actress Lila Leeds weren't tipped off to steer clear, as others were. He spent a week in a county lockup, and was convicted of possession and dead a month and a half on a prison farm. His conviction was later overturned when it was revealed the raid had been entrapment. It killed Leeds' career but only seemed to add to Mitchum's, reinforcing his laconic, tough-guy-go-his-own-way vibe. Tame stuff compared to some of the Hollywood goings-on now. He was married to Dorothy from 1940 until his passing. A cool cat. The film has dozens of actors due to the need to hold up the twisting plot, but I'll just call out a few supporting players. Paul Valentine plays Joe Stefanos, Witt's right-hand man and pistol guy, He's nicely elegant, smooth, and a fun part of the film. Not surprising since he started as a ballet and then popular dancer. Past was his film debut, and he is excellent. Like Greer, he later appeared in the remake Against All Odds as Councilman Weinberg. Child actor Dickie Moore plays The Kid, Jeff's speech and hearing-impaired partner. Moore was 22 when he played in Past, having acted in films since he was 2, appearing in the Art Gang series, then later in Oliver Twist, Sergeant York, then founding a PR firm and marrying dancer and actor Jane Powell. He ties a lot of the plot together. Finally, playing Secretary Mita Carson is Rhonda Fleming. Fleming had another long career in Hollywood and plays in beautiful black and white in past, which was a personal disadvantage as her red hair showed up so well in color so much so that she was known as the Queen of Technicolor. She has a small but memorable role in past, lent to RKO under her contract to David O. Selznick. She was in dozens of A-films, such as Spellbound, The Spiral Staircase, A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, and with Kirk Douglas in Gunfight at the O.K. Corral. Spoilers ahead. Lots of twists and unresolved questions in this one. So a typical noir, yes? I'll try to stay focused. We follow Joe Stefanos as he drives through the Sierra Country in California, much like the areas in my northern Arizona known as parks, meadows and grasslands surrounded by forests, hills, and mountains. He's passing into the small, idyllic town of Bridgeport. He stops at a gas station with a sign noting the owner is Jeff Bailey. There he makes himself understood to the kid that he wants to see Jeff. He ambles across the street to a lunch counter where he hears the gossip that Jeff is seeing a lot of Ann Miller, played by Virginia Houston, which distresses her longtime boyfriend and California official Jim, played by Richard Webb. The kid goes to a lake where Jeff and Ann are fishing, plus discussing marriage, and lets Jeff know about the stranger to see him. Jeff chats warily with Joe, who noticed him pumping gas on an earlier trip, and told Witt, who would like to see Jeff at his place in Tahoe. Witt seems to have something that hangs over Jeff. Jeff goes to see Ann that night, and they drive to Tahoe, as Jeff relates the story, now in flashback. His real name is Jeff Markham, and he was a private detective in New York City with a not-so-reputable partner, Jack Fisher. Witt had sent for Jeff and was annoyed when Jack showed up as well. Witt has been shot by his girl, Kathy Moffat, and she's disappeared, taking $40,000 from him. He wants Jeff to find the money and the woman, saying no harm will come to her, intimating she's something special. He offers Jeff 10000 plus expenses, which Jack then lays claim to half of, though he's not invited on the chase. Jeff interviews Kathy's hired help and learns she was getting immunized and left on a trip. He follows her trail to Mexico City, Tosco, and finally Acapulco. He accidentally, on purpose, runs into her at a bar, And she's a knockout. She's standoffish, but tells him about another place she frequents at night. She stands him up the first night, then shows the next. He follows her around from place to place, falling rapidly in love with her and kissing her. She knows he's been sent by wit, and she tells him she hates wit and is sorry he didn't die. Give him time, says a nonplussed Jeff. She says she didn't take the 40000 He says there's no rush in taking her back. They see each other every night. Jeff telegraphs wit he's in Acapulco. Kathy finally invites Jeff back to her place as the rain beats down one night. They embrace as a lamp falls over and the wind and storm blows the door open, a bad portent, foreshadowing the mark of fine literature. Jeff plots that they'll run away together the next day, and Kathy agrees. Witt and Joe surprise Jeff at his hotel the next morning, Wit supposedly wanting to see a horse to buy in Mexico City. Jeff says he's missed Kathy at every stop and doesn't want to waste any more of Witt's money. They go to the hotel bar, and Jeff looks around for Kathy to show. Wit finally tells Jeff to keep looking for her and departs. Jeff and Kathy take a steamer north to San Francisco, and Jeff opens a small PI office. One day at the track, they're spotted by his old partner, Jack, who Whit is employed to find Jeff. Jeff splits up with Kathy, heads to L.A., with Jack following him. Later, once they feel Jeff has shaken, Jack, they meet at a cabin away from the city. But Jack has picked up Kathy's trail and followed her. He tells Jeff that he'll not tell Whit if they hand over the 40000 He might even give them some of it. Jeff and Jack begin to fight. And as Jeff starts to get the upper hand, Kathy coldly shoots Jack dead. She tells Jeff he never would have killed Jack, that he would have inevitably gone to wit. Kathy runs away, leaving Jeff to bury Jack and discover Kathy's checkbook. With an entry for a deposit of $40,000, he's been made a fool. This brings Jeff and Ann to the gate of Wit's house in Tahoe. They part. Jeff saying he's tired of running and needs to clean the situation up. Ann tells him she wants him back and drives away. Whit greets Jeff breezily tells him he's just in time for breakfast. He outlines that he's employed a lawyer to hide his illicit earnings, saving him a million in taxes. Whit paid off the lawyer, but now he wants more. The lawyer has records that implicate Wit. He wants Jeff to steal those records. At first, Jeff is uninterested, even though he failed in his earlier work for Witt. Kathy shows up at breakfast, which turns Jeff's blood cold. Wit now maintains that Jeff owes him and insists that Jeff help him, dropping hints about his previous involvement with Kathy. They're going to put him on a train to San Francisco that p.m. to go case the lawyer, Leonard Eales. Jeff goes to get some sleep, and Kathy visits him, saying she had to come back to Wit. Jeff is quietly disgusted with her and calls her a leaf that blows from gutter to gutter. She swears she hasn't told Wit about killing Jack at the cabin. Jeff tells her to get out, that he has to sleep in that room. Hang on, now the plot gets really complex. Jeff goes to San Fran and sees Mita Carson, Eels's secretary. They plan to go to Eels's apartment that night, pretending Jeff is Carson's cousin so he can case the joint. Mita says she'll lure Eels from his apartment in a few days, and then Jeff can grab the documents. Jeff picks up an old acquaintance from his P.I. days who drives a taxi. He conducts Jeff around town. Jeff shows at Eels, drinking a martini, leaving his fingerprints, and bandying words with the attorney, intimating Eels is being set up. Jeff and Carson leave, and Carson is furious with him for his supposed verbal clumsiness. She tells him to go back to his room and wait a few days for her message. Instead, he has his cabbie friend follow Carson and goes back up to Eels's. No one answers, but he goes through an adjacent apartment into Eels's to discover him dead. Jeff hides the body and learns the cabbie lost Carson. Jeff returns to Carson's apartment to find a party going on and overhears Kathy pretend to be Carson calling Eels' building super to find out why he won't answer. The super says he's not in his room, which sends Kathy into a panic, as Eels's dead body was supposed to trigger the frame of Jeff. Jeff confronts Kathy, and he lies to her that he tipped off Eels. But wants to take care of Eels and punish Jeff, so he set up Eels for death and set up the frame of Jeff. But what was the motive? Witt has supposedly forced Kathy to sign an affidavit that Jeff killed Jack at the cabin and Eels has it in his safe. Kathy tries to persuade Jeff that they can get both the tax records and the affidavit, that she still loves him. He's indifferent, except to get all the documents. Kathy tells Jeff to go to a club in North Beach for the tax records. Joe shows up and Kathy furiously asks what happened. He lets her know he killed Eels, though he didn't enjoy it. Kathy begins to see the double, no, triple cross. Jeff goes to North Beach, punches the club owner, and obtains the briefcase with the tax records. He heads to a shipping company to get the briefcase to the airport in a few hours. Joe shows up and grabs Jeff, taking him back to the club, where we find Kathy again. Jeff tells them that he has the tax records, and they need to get the affidavit to him and he'll give them the tax files and the location of Eels' body. This will keep Wit off their backs, since they've screwed up so badly. Jeff finds that the police have already been called at Eels' place, while Kathy calls Witt to tell him in code there are problems. In Bridgeport, Anne's parents read in the paper that Jeff is suspected of Eels' and Jack's murders. Jim is part of the dragnet looking for Jeff and finds Ann near a stream. She tells him she doesn't believe Jeff killed anyone. The kid is brought to Whit's mansion, and Kathy and Joe tell him that Whit is away fishing in the mountains, and they're sending for him to meet Jeff. The kid leaves, and Kathy tells Joe to follow him, hoping to take care of the situation before Whit gets wind of it. The kid takes his fishing gear to where Jeff routinely fishes a river, Joe following from a distance. The kid starts to fish, and Joe spots Jeff downstream. The kid sees Joe and, as he levels his gun at Jeff, hooks his trench coat with a lure. They're all lure and plug fishermen, which is disappointing, not a fly fisherman in the bunch. Joe falls to his death in the river. Jeff shows at Wit's and wakes Kathy from sleep, telling her Joe is dead. Jeff wants to talk to Wit, and Kathy tries to tell Jeff she didn't send Joe after him. Jeff goes calmly to talk to Wit. He bargains with Wit to pin Eels' murder on Joe, a modest fifty thousand in cash, and sending Kathy over for Jack's murder, releasing the affidavit to Jeff. Jeff talks to Kathy calmly about the women's prison in Tehachapi and how she'll enjoy it. Wit realizes that Kathy has killed Jack, and Joe's death was her fault as well. Jeff gives him until morning to set everything up. He leaves, and Wit slaps Kathy hard. He tells her she's going to sit for anything he wants her to do now, or he'll kill her, slowly. He's going to send her over to the cops. Jeff drives to Bridgeport in the night and meets Anne, telling her that he feels nothing for Kathy anymore, and he wants to go away with her after he clears everything up in the morning. Jim has followed Jeff, and after he's talked to Anne, tells him he's not fit for her. Jeff drives back to Tahoe and discovers Kathy has shot and killed Whit. She tells him she's in charge now and they're taking the money intended for Jeff to meet a plane in the desert. She tells him she was never anything but what she is, that he only imagined what he thought she was like. There's no one to pin the murders on now except him. He has no outs. She goes upstairs, packs a bag, and grabs the money. Jeff surreptitiously makes a call from downstairs. They have a last drink and Jeff tells her they deserve each other. They pack up and drive off towards the rendezvous with the plane. Ahead, police, tipped off by Jeff, have set up a roadblock. Jeff is driving and when Kathy sees the roadblock, she calls him a rat and shoots him with a pistol. The cops are taking aim at the car and Kathy fires at them with the pistol, one of the cops opening up with a machine gun, killing her. The car piles into the blockade and as the cops open the driver's side door, Jeff's lifeless body drops to the ground. Jim tries talking to Ann the next day, telling her he only wants to be nearer, that they can just go for a drive. Ann breaks away and talks to the kid, telling him he knew Jeff best. Was he going away with Kathy? She has to know. The kid slowly nods yes, and Ann walks off and gets in the car with Jim. The kid looks at Jeff's name on the gas station sign, and gives it a final wave and high sign. He's done the right thing, lied to Ann to free her from thinking about Jeff for the rest of her life. me, this one is a pinnacle of the genre, along with Indemnity, as it has so many of the elements that go into making classic noir, as well as the perfect protagonist. For an upper-class B, RKO hit all the right notes, especially with the happy combination of the director and cinematographer. Tonnerre and Musaraka were of the same mind in terms of mise-en-scene, and the work they do is a classic of noir with the moody lighting and shadowed backgrounds of the big, bad cities deeply contrasted with the openness and sunny quality of the Sierra and Tahoe scenes. And the smoking. Someone lights up every other minute, allowing Musaraka to focus the lights on where the exhaled smoke will go, heightening the feelings of dread and danger. The voiceover by the protagonist is a mainstay of the genre, And Mitchum's exposition neatly and effectively propels the first half of the film so that we can understand how he falls like a building for Kathy and then realizes she's a treacherous reptile. The stakes and alliances change constantly in the second half of Past, creating classic noir ambiguity, confusion, and the hard choices Mitchum has to cut through. And he almost does! But in the end, out of the past of his association with Wit, comes the forces that end up killing his chances for redemption and killing him. As almost universal in Noir, he plans, he bobs, he weaves. He's so clever he almost escapes, but fate swallows him. Two more elements that add to my love and need to watch past over and over, and which no Noir would be complete without, the foam and the hard boil of the dialogue. As earlier... Stanwyck as Phyllis in Indemnity is an all-time performance. She plots so well and so darkly that Walter Neff never quite figures it all out. She even shoots him in the climax, which he somehow doesn't see coming. But Greer's Kathy is a close second as a FOM, with their ability to switch allegiances so easily, as well as lie so smoothly. I think Greer's enigmatic expression helps sell the point of her dark personality. She's completely irredeemable. She kills Jack with the explanation that Jeff wouldn't have done it, resulting in Wit continuing to chase her. She admits to Jeff in the climax she's as terrible as he thought, but he's stuck with her. Then shoots him at the police roadblock without turning a hair. Merely a bad choice and something else to try to get out of. Jeff has tried to unwind the past that he's trapped by for the entire second half of the film, but can't get away in the end. However, he makes the decision to end Kathy, one way or another. She's as bad as he described her, blowing from one gutter to another. The dialogue is tremendous, especially as so much of it is delivered in Mitchum's completely even, laconic style. Joe stops at the diner to wait for Jeff and says to the diner owner, One day I'm breezing through here and there's his name up on a sign. The owner replies, It's a small world. Yeah, Joe says, or a big sign. When Kathy threatens to send Jeff over for Jackson Eel's killings, he slips in the weary phrase of the novel's title, Build my gallows high, baby. Jeff, in confronting Kathy with the fact she sent Joe after him, Joe isn't coming back. He got careless and fell in the river. Did you hear what I said? Joe's dead, Kathy. Can't you find some tears for him? Mitchum's nonchalance with the danger and dread of the noir is underlined when he confronts Kathy about trying to pin Eels' murder on him. Kathy says, I don't want to die. And Mitchum replies with a phrase that could stand in for any dialogue in any noir, in all the gin joints in all the world. Neither do I, baby, but if I have to, I'm going to die last. It doesn't get any more hard-boiled than that. i got a few more noirs to idolize in the future, including some neo-noir, some future noir, but this one is tops. Now, I do love the noir feelings of past, but what's riveting is Mitchum. Not in the sense that he's coming off the screen as some type of method actor. No, he barely seems to be acting at all. He's playing Robert Mitchum, with all the strange experiences that went into his own life, neatly coming out in the character of Jeff. Mitchum was famous for deriding acting his career, saying his role was to show up on time, know his lines, hit his marks, and go home. Commenting on his range as an actor, he said, Look, I have two kinds of acting. One on a horse and one off a horse. That's it. But the fine points of his style still hit you. When Kathy shoots Jack, Mitchum looks completely surprised. He's totally in the moment. Similarly, when he discovers Wit's dead body, his look sums up the fact that he's run out of options. The only option he has now is whether he kills Kathy personally or the police do. As the years rolled, he became even more world-weary in his style, best encapsulated in his work in British Raymond Chandler remakes, The Big Sleep and Farewell, My Lovely. In those, he's so world-weary, it seems as if he sleeps in his trench coat. And he went on in this manner for decades, never building himself up to be something he wasn't. The image I have of him is sitting on talk shows in the 60s and 70s, smoking, smoking, wearing tinted glasses that gave him an inscrutable air, barely speaking about the film he was just in. He's just there, being Mitchum. He was one of the last of the physically dominating Hollywood actors of the era, before Hollywood scripts demanded that actors go out and spend months prior to a shoot working with trainers, and God knows what else, to appear massive enough for the role. It's lampooned mercilessly by Seth MacGarlane in Family Guy, with a little vignette called out-of-shape-in-shape guy from the 50s, in which Mitchum is named and cartoon. He's impressively tough, as long as he holds in his breath, keeping his gut above the high-waisted 40s trousers he wears. Mitchum was so cool, he went on Saturday Night Live as host, in which he mocked past in a skit called Out of Gas, with Greer. That's when you're the king cat, when you can mock your own legend, but laconically. And one lousy Academy nomination after that career. If I recognized him as the twenty third greatest male actor in Hollywood, as well as recognizing his work in Cape Fear and the Night of the Hunter and its list of top villains. Should he be more respected than he is? Should he have garnered more awards for his understated long term acting? Baby, I don't care. To me, he's tops. You can find us on the web and social media. We're at those wonderful people on Instagram. And at Films in the Dark on Twitter. Our website is thosewonderfulpeople.com, where we post pod episode transcripts and you can leave your questions and comments. Our music is by Martin Shelikins, Alex Zavesa, and Alex Chernick. I'm David Jansen. Talk with you soon. And as always, I'll leave the last word to Mr. Scorsese. What are the essentials to you? What makes cinema? I think what makes cinema to me, uh, I think ultimately it's something that for some reason stays with you, uh, so that a few years later you could watch it again, or 10 years later you watch it again and it's different. In other words, there's more to learn Mm -hmm. about yourself or about life. Mm -hmm.